Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting industry focus. LinkedIn Jobs uses knowledge of both hard and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today's Thursday, July 25th. We're going to take a quick look at Ford's earnings, discuss an expanded partnership between Ford and GW, and take a look at uh, the negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three automakers in the U.S. and how those are starting to play out. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Auto Analyst, John Rosevier via Skype. How are you doing, John? Very exciting time uh, to be watching the auto industry. It, 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 we live in interesting times. <laughs> you know, the auto industry is living in very interesting times right now, Nick. It's, it, it's quite something. It's going to be an interesting few quarters here. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about new new technology, EVs, autonomous. You've got some geopolitical things with tariffs. You've got China, China's uh, uh, auto market starting to slow down for the first time in decades. Lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, the news of the day, though, is Ford just reported earnings last night. Shares were down around 7% uh, this morning on the news. John, can you give us a, a kind of a, the highlights of what happened and what's going on with the company today? Well, at first glance, I mean, the number looks terrible. Uh, net income was $148 million. That's down like 86% from the second quarter last year. You know, what the heck happened? Uh, the thing is, though, Ford had warned us that over the next few years, they're going to pile up about $11 billion in one-time restructuring charges because they're doing their, they're they're executing the, um, you know, the the company redesign that they've talked about for a few years now, and, and they're doing significant restructuring all over the world, uh, dropping products, closing factories, uh, you know, changing around, changing things around drastically, uh, and a lot of that is just accounting write-offs. You know, it, it's accounting charges; it's not real cash, but there is some cash involved there. Uh, more to the point, though, uh, why the stock is down, I am guessing, I mean, we never know, but I am guessing it's because technically they missed, even excluding the one-time charges uh, for restructuring, which we'll get to in a minute, they earned 28 cents a share, which is not bad. It's up a penny from a year ago, but Wall Street was expecting 31 cents a share, and we know what that means. Ford missed. Um, I talked to Ford CFO Tim Stone yesterday afternoon, right after the right after the the earnings were released. I was still working through the press release actually when it, when we had the call, uh, and he said uh, one thing that made a big difference was that Ford um, marked to market uh, an investment they had made in 2016 in a cloud software consulting firm called Pivotal. Uh, in 2016, they invested a little over 182 million in Pivotal. Uh, I have not dug into the details here yet. The 10Q just came out, but uh, Tim told me that um, they marked it down, the value of that down by 181 million. So it was almost a complete write-off. He said without that markdown, they would have earned adjusted earnings, uh, excluding the one-time items, of 32 cents per share, which would have beat Wall Street by a penny. Uh, So this might just be a a big overreaction. Um, If we dig into the numbers, I mean, what we see is that this ongoing redesign effort is actually showing some signs of progress. It's early days yet, and it's going to be a couple of years before we can really see it shine, um, assuming the economy holds on us. But um, you know, one of the things I saw in all of Ford's regional business units, uh, pricing improved year over year. That means Ford is getting more money for its vehicles on average. Uh, in some cases, it's fairly small, and in some cases, it's quite significant. It was enough to push Europe to a profit from a loss last year. Um, I, I mean, the the net improvement was they made 126 million more. <laughs> you know, it was a 53 million profit versus a loss last year. Uh, and what happened there was um, they kept costs under control and sold a more profitable mix of vehicles uh, at 
strong, good prices, more commercial vehicles, fewer small Fiestas. Uh, they're, they're all new focus, which they did not introduce in the United States. It's doing very well in Europe. Uh, and, you know, their wholesale shipments were up 3% in a fl uh, what has kind of been a sluggish market there. Uh, they uh, lost a lot of money in South America, um, but less than they might have, again, because of pricing uh, gains. Uh, China has been a disaster for them, but it's looking better and better. All the key metrics were up year over year. Product mix was better. They're selling more Lincolns, which is interesting. Lincoln is getting traction in China. This has been kind of a quiet story, the Lincoln luxury brand. Uh, pricing improvements again there. They're making great progress on costs. Uh, and for once, Ford was actually helped by exchange rates. We usually come out and say, Ford did great, but then exchange rates cut it back. <laughs> I don't know if they've had bad luck hedging that or what. Uh, but but China is, is, they're still losing money there, but it's turning into a good story. You can start to see daylight down the tunnel. Um, and Ford Credit, their captive financing arm, continues to be, uh, you know, on an EBIT basis, a profit monster. $831 million, up 29%. Um, you know, they, they've, just, they've just let that loose, and, and it's, it's generating a lot of money for them. Uh, they're in good shape with debt. They're in, they restructured some debt in the quarter, uh, and you know their guidance for the year is 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 toned down a bit. Um, but they're still expecting two 2019 to be better than last year, and for the progress to continue in the next couple of years. So, you know, overall, it wasn't a bad story. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think as as the analysts and and the smarter financial media get their heads around what really happened here, that I, I would think the stock will stabilize, although I'm never completely confident predicting what's going to happen from day to day in the market because there are so many curveballs here. But, um, you know, the, the, yes, they quote unquote missed, but it wasn't, wasn't, I mean, this isn't something you need to worry about if you're a Ford shareholder. This is about what we expect. Yeah, John, just to, the, the Pivotal software thing, it seems interesting to me and in that, you know, their, their earnings are negatively affected by something that just, just, a lot of folks might not even be aware of. Uh, when you had the conversation with the CFO, any idea why now was the time to write down nearly the entirety of that investment, and what was behind the scenes there? No, I didn't. I didn't poke at it a lot. I mean, we were digging into sort of the restructuring stuff. I, I had ten minutes with him, and I, <laughs> we talked about other stuff. Uh, I, 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 I was hoping that he would address it during the conference call. He really didn't. Um, again, I, I'm sure there will be more details about it in the 10Q. I mean, I, I don't know what happened at Pivotal. I know that uh, back in 2016, when they made the investment, um, former CEO Mark Fields, who was in charge at the time, uh, told me that they were working on uh, a project called Ford Pass, which was, uh, and still is, I guess, an app that was going to allow somebody to sort of access all of the mobility services that Ford was tinkering with and thinking about and planning everything uh, from you know parking discounts to longer term robot taxis someday. Uh, this is this is this was back if, again three years ago when they were in the phase of, of sort of tinkering with new mobility and and new technology ideas to sort of see what would stick. You know they were throwing a lot of things up on the wall. Uh, Ford Pass was one of those things. It may just be that 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 Pivotal has kind of faded out here of their picture. I'm not sure what happened exactly, but uh, we'll find out. Watch the Motley Fool because I'll write it up when I find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we know yeah. we know you'll be talking yeah, about yeah. it uh, somewhere somewhere, John. Um, speaking of kind of new technology and kind of positioning for the future, 
Uh, we've seen a, a broadening, or I guess an announced broadening, of the partnership between Ford and VW. Earlier this year, they announced plans to collaborate on trucks and commercial vehicles uh, focused on Europe, and, and then Ford is going to build uh, a truck uh, uh, for VW. And there have been rumors that this partnership might expand more broadly, uh, particularly into EVs and autonomous vehicles. And Earlier this month, well, they weren't just rumors. Ford executives were dropping very loud hints <laughs> that they were going to try and go in that direction. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we knew something was was being brewed, and yes, it, it it has all become public in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, so on July 12th, we we finally got the public announcement that yes, this is something that we're going to go forward with. Um, can you kind of give us an overview on, on what the nature of this collaboration will be, and maybe what's driving uh, Ford and VW to partner up now today? The easiest way to think about it is that VW has put a lot of money and effort over the last few years into electric vehicles. And Ford, uh, via a company it invested significantly in, a startup called Argo AI that was created by veterans of Uber's self-driving program and uh, Waymo, the Google self-driving car project, uh, made this startup. And Ford uh, invested a lot of money and it took a what was at the time a majority stake and basically transferred their whole self-driving software team to Argo and said, okay, Argo, you're in charge of the software side of our self-driving effort. And Argo has made good progress. And, and VW has not uh, made nearly as much progress on self-driving as perhaps it would like, uh, although it has, it has made a lot of progress on electric vehicles. And I think this is the two companies looking at each other going, hey, I'll share some of this if you share some of that. <laughs> That's the best way to think about this deal. Um, you know, Ford is going to, um, Ford would like to uh, get an electric commercial vehicle out in Europe ASAP. Uh, they are maybe on their own not quite ready to do that. Uh, in Europe, the, uh, the emissions regulations are tightening significantly. They need an electric vehicle out there. Ford, because of its strengths in commercial vehicles, would like that to be. Uh, they probably a commercial uh, urban delivery van. Um, so that's one part of the deal is that they're going to use VW's MEB toolkit, uh, which is uh, this is the German abbreviation for for modular electric vehicle drive or something like that. Uh, what this is 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 think of it as Lego bricks to make electric cars with. Um, they can assemble them in different ways and make small short-range cars or large long-range vehicles or, or so forth. Um, it, it's it's pre-engineered building blocks um, is the way VW does this. It's not quite like what we think of when we think of a traditional uh, vehicle platform. It, it's something a little more clever and a lot more flexible. Uh, but VW has invested uh, bazillions of euros. <laughs> I, I'm not going to try and quantify it, but it's a lot of money uh, in ramping up a supply chain to produce MEB-based vehicles, uh, millions of them every year, uh, within about five, six years. Uh, starting, um, they hope, by the end of 2019 with the first one, uh, which will be uh, a, a, a hatchback for Europe. Uh, if you imagine sort of an extra sleek-looking Volkswagen Golf, you'll be very close to what that vehicle looks like. But in any event, Ford is going to, um, in its own factory, uh, use uh, the MEB architecture to produce um, what we believe is a commercial van. And their goal is to deliver more than 600,000 of, uh, of these in Europe over the course of six years. So this is going to be a significant seller. I mean, you're, th you're talking, um, you know, what, eight, 9,000 a month there. And uh, which, which is real numbers for a commercial vehicle in Europe. Uh, you know, this is probably going to be part of the transit family. Um, 
And, and this saves them a lot of costs, a lot of work around developing an electric supply chain, which they may not have in Europe, um, et cetera, et cetera. They can just bang, go do it. They've got to learn MEB. They've got a tool aligned for it. And all of that is going to take a couple of years. But by 2023, this thing's going to be out and rolling. And that will help them a lot uh, in the European market where Ford uh, plans to you know, maintain a significant long-term presence. Uh, they are restructuring in Europe, but they, they, they sell a lot of vehicles in Europe and they just want to make more money selling them. <laughs> They're not going away. Uh, GM basically bailed on Europe. Ford is not bailing on Europe at all. And then the flip side of this is, is uh, you know, autonomous vehicles. Um, what's going to happen is VW is making an investment in Argo AI. Uh, at some point, they will become uh, equal partners with Ford and the remaining um, ownership stake uh, will be for Argo employees. They are not, they say, seeking additional investors. Uh, and VW will uh, contribute its own um, basically autonomous software team, which is uh, positioned in Audi, which is uh, legally, it's a subsidiary of Volkswagen Group. Uh, the Autonomous Intelligent Driving Company is the English term. I forget the German term for them. Uh, but I mean, this is VW investing in Argo and buying shares from Ford at the same time. Uh, they will independently, uh, they will use Argo's system independently, but they will jointly uh, participate in the development of the the core system. And since Argo's uh, thought to be um, fairly advanced on this, uh, you know, what people, it, it's always hard to tell where the various uh, self-driving players or contenders or wannabe contenders really are. But uh, I mean, the smart people who watch this closely think Argo's uh, ahead of many other shops, that they might be, you know, close to where GM Cruise is. Give or take, plus or minus, depending on how you judge it. Uh, and and Cruise has widely been thought to be, um, you know, winning the battle for second place behind Waymo, who is pretty much universally acknowledged to be the leader. I mean, that's the old Google self-driving car project, and they've been at this for ten years now. <laughs> so, you know, no surprise that they've shown results. <laughs> Yeah, so with this partnership, we're really seeing kind of the battle lines and autonomous being crystallized. You've seen Argo, VW, Ford is going to be a team. Uh, obviously, GM, Cruise, and Honda are a group. Uh, Toyota and Uber have collaborated on, on some on some work as well. So, you know, we've seen, I guess, Cruise this week came out and said that they're no longer going to meet their, their announced deadline to roll out their autonomous service this year. Have yeah, not... that, would, that, would, that was pretty much the most unsurprising thing yeah. ever. Yes. I, mean, I mean, they've always said, if we deem it safe, it, basically what, what they have all said, uh, all the way up to Mary Barra, GM CEO, is that once it passes our safety hurdles, we will release it. And what they said a year and a half ago or whatever was, we think that might happen in 2019. What, we're, what they're saying now is we now think that won't happen in 2019. So it's really, you know, it's not really a surprise. Uh, it's a hard problem. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I think it's just, it's just you know, people, people were very optimistic about this. And, and we, we've seen kind of the engineering problem really start to, to hit a little bit of a wall. Uh, we really rapidly uh, were able to kind of do the lane keeping and the lane following sort of thing. But as we moved into more and more complex environments, just... You know, optimism has slowed some, and that's to be expected as the problem becomes exponentially harder the more complex environments you move into. Uh, but this is, this is a significant development here, and uh, you know, we'll see how things continue to play out. Um, on the back half of the show, we're going to talk about the beginnings of negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three uh, U.S. automakers. But first, hiring isn't as simple as putting an ad in the paper or posting to a job board. 
When you're juggling hiring with everything it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. At The Motley Fool, we use LinkedIn to find candidates with the skills and interests that fit the roles we need. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability. LinkedIn does the, does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the right person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to linkedin.com slash fool. Again, that's linkedin.com slash fool to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so uh, on the back half of the show, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the beginnings of negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three Detroit automakers in the U.S. Those negotiations just began last week, and it's the beginning uh, of negotiations that will set the wages and benefits for what are 158,000 auto workers, and really uh, will lay out the investment plans for these companies uh, moving into into uh, you know future years. The current contract expires September 14th. However, it's pretty common that the, these uh, deadlines can get extended if negotiations are ongoing. Uh, as these negotiations get underway, how significant is this for for U.S. auto industry, and what should investors be following? It's always a big deal. I mean, we did this happens every four years, uh, and yeah, it's always something to watch carefully. Uh, the good news is it has been many, many years since it didn't end more or less happily. Uh, which is to say, all parties might be grumpy about the agreement, but at least they have an agreement. Uh, you know, this is unlikely to result in widespread strikes, um, but there there is a real bone of contention here. Uh, you know, the, the automakers have had good success and good sales over the last few years. Uh, the union guys, men and women, I should say, because there are plenty of women now. Uh, the union folks want more money, um, and. Meanwhile, the industry might be inclined to say, geez, we're spending all this money on new technologies and you know, it's very late in the economic cycle and we may be facing a recession before long. I don't know about that. So that's going to be uh, the lively subject of, of discussion. I mean, I, I mean, the union folks are worried, uh, well, you know, electric vehicles are going to be easier to build, so they'll need fewer workers. And then they think, oh, you know, if everybody goes autonomous, we'll be few building fewer vehicles because more people will just be taking taxis. I mean, you know, they've been listening to uh, the tech press on all this stuff over the last five years like the rest of us have. Um, and, and they're like, well, you know, we want to preserve as many jobs here as we can and we want to get paid. <laughs> and and, and it, it's going to be a tough negotiation. Uh, you know, I, I don't think this is going to result in a big strike and a big disaster. And I don't think it's going to result in a significant cost increase for, for the Detroit automakers because they have fought so hard to get their uh, U.S. Uh, costs down to something closer to globally competitive levels, um, you know, while still honoring their agreements with the United Auto Workers. And it's it's it, it's going to be it's going to be a wrestling match. Um, again, I think it will be resolved amicably because that's how these things have gone in recent years. But, but things could get heated for a while. Yeah, you've got uh, the president of the UAW, Gary Jones, come out and saying, you know, uh, the past few years, uh, the the labor has really taken some concessions to help out the automakers, particularly coming out of of the recession, two thousand eight, uh, two thousand nine. They say, hey, uh, the, these automakers are making record profits, and we're being asked to, to make concessions. Uh, and so they have an argument. But as you said, 
you know, we're seeing some slowing in the automotive market right at the time when these negotiations come up, which really creates tension. Uh, you know, labor is looking back at how profits have been over time and the rewards that they have achieved, while management is looking forward. Uh, to what could be real expenses to roll out these new technologies while uh, the, the, the cycle still continues. Um, I have seen some reporting that GM could be, if anybody is going to be a strike target in these negotiations, could be one uh, that is that is is targeted. They are uh, to, moving to correct capacity issues by pulling products out of four U.S. plants, which has uh, raised tensions with the UAW, who wants to keep the, the, those jobs in place. Any thoughts about companies that might be particularly at risk if there is going to be an escalation of tensions and maybe if strikes do happen? Well, it was interesting to watch last fall, um, you know, if you've been watching this industry for a while, when GM announced that they were going to be shutting down, uh, in particular, Lordstown, or, or, you know, not have any new products for it after discontinuing the Chevy Cruze Compact, which was built there for years. Uh, that That's a big plant, a big assembly plant that's very visible. Um, and, you know, yes, they were going to try and place as many of the employees from there as they could in new jobs, but some of those jobs are, you know, a couple hours drive away, and that's that's hard on a family. Uh, meanwhile, Ford, uh, which was making its own restructuring in North America, hastened to say, we are not closing any plants. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I think some people who are watching were like, oh, there, he's... Ford's trying to appease, you know, the Trump administration or whatever. And I heard that and I said, no, Ford, Ford is telling the union to chill out, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, that, that's what that was. That was Ford saying the telling the UAW, okay, it's cool. We're going to talk to you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, you know, everybody's going to have a job here. Um, or, or at least every plant's going to stay open. They may cut his shifts here and there, but, um, the UAW of course hates to see plants closed. I, that's why unions exist, right? I, you know, they hate that. I don't know if they're going to strike GM. Um, I do get the sense that that things between the UAW and Ford have been a bit more graceful and a bit less contentious over the last year than they have been between the UAW and GM, where GM might have been a little heavy-handed. And I mean, this is me reading the situation from the distance, but you know, I've watched a couple of these rounds in the past, and um, that's my sense of this. So. It, you know, usually what they do is they start negotiations with everybody, and then they pick one automaker to hammer out what they call the pattern agreement, which is they go into really intense negotiations with one of the big three, get an agreement, and then try and get the other two uh, to buy into essentially the same agreement, so that all the auto, so that all their workers get roughly the same deal. Um, my sense, you know, I, I'm not sure who they picked to do the pattern agreement this time. I'm not sure if that has happened yet. It sounded like they were leaning towards Ford, but um, it is, you know, if if they're going to pick a fight with somebody, my sense is that you're probably not wrong it, that that it could be GM. Um, but you know, these things can go in a lot of different directions. You think everything's going along fine, and then they hit some little thing that turns out into a big thing, and then. You know, the UAW does one of these 12-hour walkouts or something, <laughs> which is their way of sort of, you know, reminding the automaker that, yes, you know, our gun is here and it is loaded, <laughs> you know, that, that we can hurt you. Uh, but, of course, that hurts them, too, because they don't get paid during a strike. Um, so, I, I, th I think this will all end happily. Um, or at least, like I said, not not too awfully for everyone. I don't know how they'll get there, and it it is possible that we could hear some heated words, and even some likely very short targeted labor action uh, 
between here and there. If they get really frustrated, they will do a walkout. And the UAW's style is not to do a big extended strike um, like they used to do in the 60s and 70s. These days, what they, what they do is they pick one plant that makes you know, really important parts or a really critical product or whatever, and they walk out for 12 hours or something. Uh, and, you know, it makes the point. Um, it's sort of just, you know, remember we have power too. <laughs> and, and so I don't know. I, I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, but it's going to be um, a complicated negotiation for both sides. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, again, like we mentioned off the top of the show. It's just another one of those balls that the management has to keep in the air right now. If you're if you're a major auto uh, executive, you've got you know issues like you said Brexit in, in in the UK. You've got the cycle obviously looking like it's starting to slow down around the world, particularly in China. And then you've got these negotiations coming down the line. Something to follow. Lots, uh, not a super easy time to be an auto executive, but uh, we'll be paying attention. Just one takeaway I want to give you before we end, which is that it doesn't get a lot of attention from investors, but managing labor relations is a very big part of being a senior auto executive in any of the automakers around the world. Um, you know, they all battle these battles, and, and in different countries, the unions have. There are some countries where the unions have a lot of power. Uh, you know, in Germany, you have a union representative on your board of directors uh, by law. And, 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 and so, you know, investors don't look at this mostly because uh, there haven't been huge strikes in recent years. But there's always the potential. There's always the potential. Yeah, something to continue to follow. And we'll, uh, we'll have you on, John. And we'll have you writing articles on fool.com for us to keep track of everything, everything uh, that, that's happening in this industry. Um, as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass. For John Rosevere, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! So, John, this is Dan. We got about five minutes left. Why don't you tell us a little bit what you think about the uh, new Corvette C8? <laughs> so, okay. So, I, I, I am old enough to have been reading car magazines since the 1970s. And I started very young. Uh, let's put it that way. And I am a former Corvette owner. And uh, since I was a little kid, GM has been talking about a mid-engine Corvette. And so now they have finally gone and done it. And, you know, if my teenage car nut self could come forward in time and see this, he would be laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. Uh, you know, oh my goodness, they've finally done it. Uh, and they're going to deliver it for a price that's close to the last generation car, which was really, you know, just, uh, they had been evolving since the fifth generation Corvette. They'd been kind of evolving that design and engineering through the sixth and seventh generations. And now this is something very new. It's, it's very new. It's very significant. It's got, you know, Corvettes have always to some extent been GM's test bed for new technologies and new manufacturing processes because, you know, the volumes are fairly small, you know, 12,000 a month or whatever. Um, and this is no exception. I mean, they're, they're building it from these huge aluminum pieces, uh, the frame, uh, which is something new that they're casting actually in an engine shop. Uh, it, it's it's obviously it's mid-engined. It looks it it still looks vetish with the sort of stealth fighter aesthetic that they they adopted uh, several years ago. Um, you know, it carries over the general rear end shape from the seventh generation Corvette, uh, but it's also something new. I mean, if you look at it in side profile and squint, it looks like 
you know, any of several mid-engine Ferraris from the last 20 years or so, uh, which is to some extent inevitable from the packaging. Um, I'm not going to know what to think of it until, you know, until I personally drive one, or at least until reviewers I, I have known and respect drive one and offer detailed opinions. Uh, but there's enough interest and intrigue around this that it could turn out to be, at least by Corvette standards, a home run for them. Uh, you know, they have delivered it at a starting price. We, we don't know uh, what the average selling price is going to be, and we won't have any idea where to even guess until we see how they price the options packages. Uh, but, you know, they're promising it starts under 60,000, which is this, is, this is this is a car with almost 500 horsepower, mid-engined, uh, a very sophisticated suspension design, um, and you can get it fixed at a Chevy dealer. <laughs> it's quite a value. On paper, it's quite a value proposition. John, is it the so we'll first dual-clutch uh, Chevy? Um, I don't think they've done one before. Um, I don't remember if they, they've had one in, in the C6 or C7 in some limited way. Uh, it, it is certainly the first one without a traditional manual transmission. First bet without a traditional manual transmission. Uh, it is a new implementation for them. I mean, there's a lot that's completely new about this. It, you know, it, 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 when you move the engine behind the driver, a lot of subtle things change. Um, you know, like, like this version of the V8, they, they've changed the shape of the block to drop the crankshaft an inch lower or something like that uh, to get the whole thing to sit lower in the chassis. Um, you know, there are a bunch of changes, and, and I haven't dug into it in detail, but uh, we shall see. <laughs> when they yeah. announced everything last week, I was, I was watching every video that they put out on it and just drooling at my desk because I... I'm an absolute love with the machine. I, I've, I've been a Corvette fan since I was a little kid, so seeing them come out and make something that looks so similar to like a Euro supercar and could potentially perform in the same ballpark is really, really exciting for me. For 60000 bucks, and it looks like you know, you're know you a fighter pilot when you sit in the thing. I mean, yeah, it's not I, bad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not like a technical yeah. car person, but it just that's a really cool car for that price point. I mean... I had is. many years ago a 1990 ZR1, which was both a great car and a terrible car. And yes, I'm saying that on the show. <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, at, at the time it came out, aside from the Ferrari F40, which was current, uh, this was the fastest car in the world. And, you know, it would do a legit 180 miles an hour, which was in 1990, pretty insane. Now, I bought it used several years later. Mine wasn't new. But, um, you know, it was a brilliant engine. Uh, but the whole thing as a package seemed like it had been developed on the cheap a little bit. And that's always to some extent been the story with Corvettes, that they, on the surface, it has a lot of whiz-bang new technology, but then, you know, you start to live with it and everything squeaks and rattles and this and that. They've gotten a lot better since the early 90s on, on the sort of squeak and rattle fronts and the, the structural integrity fronts. Uh, but... You know, just looking at the photos of the interior and so forth, I, I think you're going to sit in this and still feel like you're in a Chevy. You're in a plush, sporty Chevy, but you're in a Chevy, um, which is, is both to be expected because that's what it is. Uh, but then, you know, if you're driving this back to back with a 911, um, I don't know how that's going to play. Uh, what I am very much looking forward to with this thing is, is seeing it out racing. You know, they're going to take this to Le Mans, and that's going to be a blast. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. And I just want to remind listeners that the last time GM made a mid-engine car, I believe it was the Pontiac Fiero, and I think we all know how that did.
Yeah, uh, the, the factory manager was a young up-and-coming middle manager by the name of Mary Barra, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> familiar name. Yeah. On the Fiero factory. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the Fiero was, I mean, it was a completely different mission. It was, it was, um, it was, it was a sporty commuter car. It was not aimed to be a high-end sports car. And, and that was the 80s when GM dropped a lot of balls, frankly, and, and things went awry. Well, John, thanks so much for talking the Corvette with me. We're out of time, though, so we got to go. Yeah, we're going to kick that out of the right, studio. Then. I hope everybody enjoyed the, uh, the little discussion.